And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Hello, this is Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. On today's show, I would like to welcome back our rock star guest, Michael Kaufman, a research program director in the Russia Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And I'm also very honored to introduce a special guest joining us today from Ukraine, Sergei Grabsky, Colonel in Reserve in the Ukrainian military, who has participated as part of NATO operations in Kosovo and Iraq. Sergei, you're obviously a Ukrainian patriot, member of the Ukrainian military, but you also have been a very sober and fair military analyst throughout this war. I have certainly personally learned a lot from listening to your commentary on Ukrainian news channels, and I'm very excited to bring your unique insights and knowledge to the Western audience that is listening to this podcast. So, Sergey, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Dmitry. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me back. So, Sergey, let me begin with you. And before we kind of get into the current state of affairs, I would love to talk a little bit about the original Russian invasion plan that Mike and I have certainly discussed many times on this podcast and have been very puzzled by uh, uh, how the Russia decided to pursue this invasion. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about Russian tactics as well. But my first question is actually about Ukraine itself. One of the things that I've certainly been very puzzled by, I, I think Mike as well, is how even in the late stages running up to February 24th, the Ukrainian government continued in its public statements, sort of make, uh, make, making statements that invasion was not likely, where the the evidence was becoming overwhelming, not just the military buildup and, and the diplomatic uh, breakdowns in, in communications, the intelligence that the U.S. was providing. Certainly both Mike and myself have been very public in our assessments. I think Mike going what, all the way back to last November, myself in December saying that Putin was very likely to invade. Um, wh- why do you think that was? Why was the Ukrainian government sort of denying that uh, this was a very, very likely outcome? And do you think that it had any impact on the readiness uh, of the armed forces uh, uh, to face this invasion? Uh, could there have been an early mobilization, for example, or anything of the sort? You know, this interesting point, but I have to confess that till the end of 23rd of February, I was also... Uh, keep the same statement that Russian would be not able to attack us in such a composition and number of troops. Because, you know, we studied in the same military schools and for me, for instance, Russian tactic and strategy is quite familiar. And that is why I can tell you that uh, those number of troops and many of my colleagues, and I spoke with uh, dozens and dozens of colleagues, uh, agreed with me that... In, in such a composition, in such a time, in such a preparation of materials, ammunition, and uh, medical services, they are not ready to conduct like a real invasion. We may anticipate, and we did, uh, possible actions in Donbass. Uh, and with that regard, it was quite clear that, okay, Russians will attack in Donbass and uh, having uh, troops on other directions make makes sense uh, because of they will keep uh, Ukrainian forces out from the main uh, epicenter of, uh, of uh, battle activity. And that is why we were quite confident Russians may attack Donbass, but not uh, as they did uh, since 24th of February. Uh, moreover, uh, even after that, uh, we were surprised that Russia did uh, such an attack through the Chernobyl zone, which is uh, a suicide attack, as we can see there, and uh, attacks through, through the uh, forest in uh, Kiev and Chernigiv oblasts, as we saw. Uh, also, also, my friends from the military intelligence service also mentioned about the very limited uh, number of materials. I'm talking about fuel, food, uh, ammunition, and other stuff, which is mandatory to be for such kind of preparation. We did not deny uh, a possibility of Russian attacks uh, and invasion against Ukraine, but we suppose in such a velocity of preparation, it may happen maybe in in April, maybe in May or end of April, beginning of May. It also makes uh, makes sense because of, you know, Russians always try to pull their actions close to the specific dates. So we anticipated that such kind of invasion 
may start uh, before the Easter, Orthodox Easter, and may finish in their assessment before the Victory Day, 9th of May, but not earlier. Uh, regarding the preparation of Ukrainian troops, I have to say that uh, since November, uh, the all kinds of preparation were speed up, uh, in not uh, only from the military perspective, but also from political perspective. And that is why uh, in January 2022, the national strategy of uh, national resistance uh, was adopted by the parliament, but uh, sad to say it was too late. I compare the situation with Poland, for instance, and the Polish authority uh, took very active actions to to establish and prepare their territorial defense. You're talking about Poland in 1939, the the, the German... No, 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 right now, right now. In 2015, uh, Polish authority authority followed uh, the lessons learned from Ukraine. They established and developed territorial defense, which now consists of, if I'm not mistaken, 55,000 troops. And uh, the territorial defense troops did a brilliant, a great job during so-called migrant crisis. And can you imagine in Ukraine, we started that preparation only in the uh, latest day of January. So less than one month before a real invasion has started. Also, also uh, that preparation uh, was on the very beginning of uh, uh, of the of the processes, and that is why uh, we didn't uh, establish we we declare creation of so-called territorial defense, but we didn't have it in fact. Uh, in parallel way, having such vis- uh, visible signs of preparation, Ukrainian troops together with uh, police, national police, with the border control service, with the state security service, launched sa- some uh, a series of uh, training and exercises since the mid of January. And frankly speaking, frankly speaking, since uh, February 15, uh, main battle troops were deployed to the field camps and to their operational districts. I can tell you, and that is why the first impact, the most massive impact of Russian aviation and rocket uh, cruise missiles was not so successful because of they simply, in most cases, they simply hit empty places. Most of troops, most of troops were already deployed to the positions, and then even more, our special operation forces started their active actions before that date. And frankly speaking, I received a call from my friends from one of the of mentioned agency about the real preparation and launching of Russian uh, movement to, close to the border with Ukraine. That is why we can't see say that uh, Ukrainian government and uh, authorities did nothing in order to be prepared for that. But, uh, you know, it's uh, my personal uh, observation and my personal opinion indeed that we waste a couple years since uh, May 2018 when the most of military programs were frozen or terminated in, in general. That is why we entered into the war having only one uh, Ukrainian uh, long-range howitzer. We had only 15 uh, uh, Vilhar rockets, and we had only one division of uh, Neptune, anti, uh, Neptune anti-ship missiles. This is it. So let, let me ask you one, one thing, Sergey, because there's been a lot of patting on the back, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, overly optimistically by Western analysts saying that one of the reasons that the Ukrainians have done as admirably as they have on the battlefield is because of all this Western training and reorganization of the Ukrainian forces since 2014 to more model NATO buildup of an uh, NCO core. How true that is that really, you know, are we giving uh, ourselves too much credit here in the West for, uh, frankly, what are your successes? No, you know, not, and I fully agree with such an assessment, even more having a good friends who serve as an instructor in a Yavarev training center. I can tell you that each infantry and mechanized infantry brigade or ASO brigade pass through the special training with United States uh, instructors at least three times since the 2015. 
I'm talking about like a true brigade, not a newly established brigade after 24th of February, but old brigades, as we call them, uh, had a brilliant experience to have such a wide uh, scale training uh, done by American and Brits in a different training center in Ukraine, centers in Ukraine. And that is why, uh, together with the real battle experience, because, you know, it's it's about the composition of such training. Uh, guys deployed to the training sec- uh, center, spend a couple months, if I'm not mistaken, something about 45 days. And then, after some sort of preparation, they deploy to the battle zone. Then they came back after such kind of uh, refreshment, refreshment, uh, uh, Treats and other things, they came to another uh, level of training. And uh, since the twenty uh, since twenty fifteen, we started from with one battalion from each brigade. Then we used like a bat- uh, brigade com- uh, HQ plus battalion, and then we used like a couple battalions plus uh, plus HQ. That is why we always increase level of uh, interaction, preparation, and effectiveness of our, our troops. And that is why that is why I fully agree with that assessment that the, one of the critical points in our resistance now is a well-developed training process for Ukrainian armed forces over there. It is not related only for infantry, for instance. We did the same for artillery units. We did the same for the armor units. Unfortunately, we didn't have such a training for our air forces because Ukraine had very limited number of airplanes. So what do you make of the Russian tactics so far since the invasion? Because there's been a lot of, quite frankly, surprise um, at the lack of ability to execute combined arms operation, lack of operational security, talking on mobile phones and not on secure radios, at least early on in the conflict. Um have we overestimated the, the capabilities of the Russian military, uh, in your opinion, or were they just completely unprepared for this fight? They were conclu- uh, completely unprepared for such kind of battle. They didn't uh, anticipate that Ukrainian forces would be able to conduct such kind of counter-actions uh, during that uh, active phase of invasion because of, you know, uh, and also they did not recognize uh, us as uh, enemies. It's a simple thing, and uh, that is why they didn't pay. Uh, you are absolutely right. They didn't pay, uh, pay even simple attention to operational security and coordination and cooperation. And uh, also, that invasion discover and uh, show everybody a real uh, level of preparation of uh, Russian armed forces because you know they still have the those. Uh, weaknesses uh, as they did before and they had before during the Chechen war and uh, other operations, including uh, including uh, Georgia. Moreover, uh, Russians suppose that they will have war something similar to uh, battle battles in Libya or Syria, for instance, and they, that is why they ignore all signs of. Uh, Ukrainian preparations and the Ukrainian resistance. They did not anticipate that Ukrainian forces were widely used uh, American armament and equipment. I'm talking about uh, uh, javelins and the British Enlo and other anti-tank equipment. Anti-tank equipment. Moreover, uh, on the, uh, at the uh, on in first days of invasion, Russian aviation. Uh, have got uh, huge losses in uh, helicopters and airplanes because of a wide usage of uh, anti-aircraft missiles by Ukrainian forces. And they did not expect that even simple territorial platoon could be equipped with a so big number of uh, anti, uh, anti-tank uh, missiles. Uh, I spoke with my colleagues from the Kiev Territorial Defense. You can imagine one single platoon with 27 personnel had 11 javelins oh. and, and low. So, which, so it means that that platoon will, would be able just to stop uh, armored uh, tank company of uh, Russian troops. And they did it. 
In addition to that, in addition to that, Russians did not pay particular attention to their supply uh, and uh, communic- uh, supply lines. And those lines were absolutely unprotected, and they, it caused to numerous losses in uh, armament and equipment of Russian troops uh, in Kiev, uh, Chernigov, and Sumy Oblast, and in Kharkiv, indeed. But it is also about the specific of terrain where those troops operated. We're seeing something very different now in the Donbass fight, right? They seem to have changed tactics after losing the Battle of Kiev and, uh, you know, using artillery devastating effects uh, to try to clear territory and then go in without uh, trying to incur as many losses as they have in the past, uh, in many ways reverting to more traditional doctrine. Are you surprised they didn't do that in the beginning of the war? And how successful do you think it's been so far in the Donbass? Yeah, frankly speaking, we we were surprised knowing well Russian tactics. We did not even think about that Russians will, would do so stupid things as they did it in uh, Kharkiv, excuse me, in uh, Kiev, Chernigiv and uh, Sumy Oblast. However, right now we have to confirm Russians did uh, a lot of lessons learned work and that is why they completely changed their uh, tactics now, knowing that Ukraine will strongly defend uh, positions of so-called maneuverable defense. And uh, now they try to advance using uh, abnormal quantity of artillery shelling. Abnormal, I can tell you, uh, because of Russians uh, simply do not uh, advance without the preparation. And what we found that uh, it's it's also about the quite visible for us as uh, neighbors of Russia, specific of tactics they use in the first line of attack in the first charge, uh, mobilize people from uh, Donbas and uh, Lugansk People Republics, and what did they do? It was like uh, I can't remember the correct English definition. Uh, testing what is it in Russian? Разведка uh, боем. Oh, uh, so reconnaissance and force. Reconnaissance, yeah, correct. Reconnaissance and force. So what did they do? As I spoke with my friends from the front line, they sent a wave of uh, mobilized people, or we call them Mobiki, uh, to the defense line of Ukrainian forces to discover, in order to discover, not to capture, but to discover uh, position of Ukrainian artillery, machine guns, uh, anti-tank uh, equipment, and other stuff. And even... They didn't recall those guys. And as soon as they discover that frontline positions of Ukrainian armed forces, they started to shell those positions. And the, the, uh, those shelling continued over the six or even eight hours, nonstop shelling. So they simply smash everything there and uh, with uh, huge losses in uh, mobilized troops, as we call it, Donbass and Lugansk people. And that is why like in losses in average in some units and battalions of uh, so-called Donbass and Lugansk People Republics uh, gain to 50, 55% sometimes. Russians did not count and still did, uh, do not count uh, their losses in, in personnel and it caused to some uh, limitations in their ability to conduct offensive actions. From the very beginning, I have to say, I have to say that now we divide uh, that operation since February 24th in three phases. Phase number one from uh, February 24th till the end of March uh, was like a wild-scale offensive in different operational directions uh, in order to capture at least the uh, east bank of the east bank Ukraine, as we call it, or uh, left bank in, in our definition. Uh, including Kiev. Uh, right now, uh, after that, since the withdrawal of their troops from the Kiev, Chernigov, Sumy, and partially Kharkiv directions, they concentrated their efforts on Donbass, trying to encircle uh, Ukrainian forces in Donbass, but day by day using their usual tactics. And their tactic from the very beginning was such as uh, we will conduct massive shell, break the line of defense, gain the operational uh, space and surround Ukrainian troops. 
But the, uh, then, after one month of that operation, in somewhere in the middle of May, they understood that there is no like one defense line, line of Ukrainian forces. So there are many strong holds of Ukrainian forces, and the Ukrainian forces having such a uh, manner of uh, of defense using so-called defensive uh, maneuverable defense. Uh, kept the position in one location, then withdraw to another position. In Russian understanding, it it could be like a, we break the line. Now nothing should be in front of us, but suddenly they face with another line of defense of Ukrainian forces, as it happened, for instance, in Popasna, and they they stuck for one month in Girsky and Zolotev, for instance, trying to reach that position. Then they uh, change their tactics again uh, since. Uh, 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 I'm talking about the second phase, about the uh, most active battle clashes in Donbass region. And after one month of desperate attacks against the Ukrainian forces, they uh, advanced maybe in 15 or 20 kilometers only, reaching to Rubizhne and Severodonetsk. And another bad idea, in my understanding, uh, of Russian planners was to try to reach uh, those locations, I'm talking about uh, cities of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, and uh, they were engaged in so-called street uh, battles, street fighting, which was a terrible mistake because uh, having that, Russians were not able to use their advantages, such as advantage in artillery, advantage in uh, armored vehicles and tanks. And they uh, also suffered from huge losses uh, during those battles. And uh, they were forced at the end of the battle to call and declare so-called operational pause. Because of their losses in Lugansk, uh, oblasts were unbelievably high. And they were need to spend some time just for reinforcement and preparation of their troops. Now we are talking about so-called phase number three, three. Uh, started from the mid of July, something about July 15, maybe 17 in different assessments, when Russians tried to uh, to push back uh, Ukrainian troops from the main triangle, uh, Slovyansk, Siversk, and Bakhmut. And after almost one, actually, how many? Actually, after three uh, weeks three of battles, uh, they have to uh, uh, redirect their efforts from uh, Slovyansk and uh, Siversk, I can tell you. Siversk actually is a quite important uh, locations to Bakhmut. So now we uh, observe uh, quite active Russian actions in uh, so-called Bakhmut directions, which also includes uh, Avdiivka and Marinka directions. At the same time, because it, it, is, uh, it is about the same phase, in the same time, Russians understood an importance of uh, defense or maybe further active actions on the south. And with that regard, we started to pay more attention, not only Ukrainian forces, but uh, Russian forces started to pay more attention to the south directions. I'm talking about the Kherson on the western bank of the river Dnieper and uh, to the so-called Zaporizhia, and I call it, frankly speaking, northern Tavria directions, which is more correct in my understanding. Uh, and now, over the last five, maybe seven days, Russians uh, started to deploy additional contingents of troops to mentioned locations. I'm talking about the western bank of the river Dnieper in the Kherson Oblast and uh, in locations in Zaporizhia Oblast. In order, at least as a minimal task, to protect, to protect uh, uh, their defensive position, uh, to do not allow Ukrainian tro troops to conduct any offensive actions. And uh, in a broader perspective, I assume, and I can't ignore it, uh, having such number of troops, Russians may start an offensive in a so-called Krivorizhia uh, uh, direction and Zaporizhia uh, direction. Why? Because of after numerous impacts of uh, Antonievsky Bridge, uh, impact of Railway Bridge and uh, Nukahovka Dump uh, on the river Dnieper, uh, they are very limited in their capabilities to conduct any logistician support to their 
uh, troops uh, fighting on the western bank of the river Dnieper now. Okay. Um, well, let, let's get to the current state. Um, so, Mike, let, let me turn it over to you. We talk a lot about the history here of the campaign. But from your perspective, uh, kind of w- where do you think things are headed with the counteroffensive? And then we'll take Sergey's view from, from Ukraine. Sure. So I would say it was very interesting listening to Sergey as somebody who's kind of on the U.S. side of this at the beginning. I, I think I have a similar but a bit of different perspective on the beginning. And, um, you know, we're learning a lot more about the very beginning of the war, is what I will say, right, about the Ukrainian side, the Russian side, and how it went and why. And we have to just be be humble about the fact that there's so much we didn't know about uh, Russian military plans, about the intelligence side of the Russian operation, what they were counting on, what they were expecting to happen that didn't happen for them, their assumptions about what they were going to make happen in Kiev and so on and so forth. So the military side, actually, we know a lot better now. And the intelligence side, we're starting to learn more about what were the Russian assumptions, what they thought they could pull off. But there's more to it than just even the military side operation. Uh, you know, that, that said, I, I, I will say only this comment about the beginning, which is the more I found out about the beginning of the war, as crazy as the Russian plan was, right, and as different as it was than I think people like me uh, had assumed, because I expected a combined arms operation, rational force employment, focusing on Ukrainian forces in the JFO first, okay, and a pincer action to Kiev only as a fixing action to move, force the Ukrainian military to keep forces there to defend the capital, so that they could advance across the Donbass to try to develop Ukrainian forces there. That they actually had an air campaign. They brought over 300 aircraft. It looked like they had an air campaign in mind, right? And and the correlation of forces wasn't large enough to, yeah, conquer all of Ukraine, sure. But it was definitely large enough to take on Ukrainian units in the Donbass, okay? If they had, if they had focused there. They had the military advantage, let's put it that way. Um and they had sort of deployed in group formations that looked like it was going to be an organized effort, right? And then they just drove in administratively. Nobody was told anything until the last day. They weren't issued the key equipment for communications. They weren't issued their orders. They were told to keep advancing and they would get orders further on. Nobody had anything set up. And the entire thing was a shambles. And they basically made the operation a surprise for their own forces. And so we... I think we are very fortunate to be living in a timeline where things worked out this way, okay? And the truth is, the more I look at the beginning, the much more close run of an affair this really was. Because at the end of the day, in the first week, the first five days, you know, there were a lot of individual decisions. You know, what if Russians were more successful at Gustamel building the air bridge? What if they could reinforce their troops? What if Ukraine's political leadership made different choices than they did in the first three days, right? There's a lot of things in the first couple of days, I will say honestly, that I am less comfortable with when I look back to saying that, yeah, it was definitely going to happen this way. No, this thing was pretty contingent, even as badly run as the Russian campaign was. But turning into where we are today in the future, I think right now the war is approaching an inflection point. That is the phase we've been in since April to today. We're now at the point where first Russian forces are still trying incrementally to advance in the Donbass, right? Towards Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, they're trying to push a bit south of Bakhmut right now. They haven't been very successful from the Zoom axis. They haven't been very successful coming in from uh, at, at the basically severe Bakhmut defensive line, but they're trying, all right? They've displaced, as Sergei said, basically Eastern Military District has shifted a lot of its units down south through Crimea and is getting ready for defense of what looks like Kherson, maybe Zaporizhia. Uh, I think Ukraine senses that it has a, a, a window of opportunity, to use the term, in the coming months to change the dynamic in the war and to change the momentum in the war. And they also feel compelled to do it because... Even though we may perceive that the military balance trajectory favors Ukraine, 
they have manpower, they have external Western military systems, they're getting more training, right? Russia has a lot of issues with sustaining manpower and force degradation, the quality of the force degradation over time. You know, by September, Russia may annex Kherson. Well, at least declare annexation, whether they can actually hold it. At yeah. least declare it, begin, begin consolidating political control, right? Um, I think there's a sense in Ukraine also that uh, as well as they've done, they've been conducting a defense in depth, losing territory, trading it for attrition. But I think they realize that Ukraine's war effort depends significantly on external support. And if they don't show that they can retake significant amount of territory, they're probably not confident about the future of external support going into the winter, right? Probably worried that Europeans will say, hey, we've given you all the weapons we had. Sorry, this is kind of it. If, if, if this is what you can do with the military assistance you've been given, then maybe you should pursue some kind of ceasefire with the Russians, right? So I can understand that there's probably a concern on the Ukrainian side that if they don't change the dynamic, right, the situation will get tougher over time. And also, if the Russian military gets a break, right, they are trying to institutionalize solution to the manpower pipeline. They are getting a lot of equipment off storage. They are repairing a lot of equipment. They do have a lot of ammunition. I think it's clear to sobride analysts, at least people, at least from my point of view, my perspective and many Ukrainian colleagues I've spoken to, okay, this war isn't, isn't in any way, shape, or form over. Just because Russian military appears exhausted, this is very far from the end. And, you know, as I often say, it's very hard to know whether you're near the beginning, the middle, or the end of a conflict, right? We don't know if this is, you know, past the end of the beginning, if this is the middle where we are. The only thing I think we, I could say, honestly, is that probably the war's inflection point. A Ukrainian offensive is likely to come. Don't know exactly where. Don't know exactly when. Don't want to. But... <laughs> <laughs> to put it honestly, right? And if I did, I probably wouldn't say it. But, uh, but, uh, but it, it's clear that uh, there, there's a sense on the Ukrainian side that if there is an opportunity to try it and to see if they can conduct a significant offensive, it's probably now's the time or in the near future. I don't know. I'm curious what Sergey thinks about that and, and, and his perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And we clearly understand that right now we have a unique chance and window of opportunity, as you, as you mentioned also, that Russians are not able to reinforce significantly and rapidly their forces right now. And we have a very narrow uh, window uh, just to conduct any effective offensive. And that is why we concentrated our efforts and uh, attention to the South, because of South plays a significant strategic role for us. If we will achieve successes, success in, in the south, it will completely destroy strategy of Russian forces over there. Uh, what I'm talking about, for instance, as I call it a principle, uh, principle of domino, uh, if we will advance uh, to Kherson and reach the border of River Dnieper, uh, uh, we will be able to keep under fire control exits from Crimea which may impact significantly uh, ability of Russians to conduct any operations in North Tavre in, comb in combination with the uh, advance of Ukrainian troops in the so-called uh, Zaporizhia direction, we may advance and uh, reach the coast of uh, Azovsi. And will, uh, it, will, uh, it will mean end of so-called uh, surface corridor or land corridor from Crimea to Russia. Uh, and uh, then, as the third option, and why we desperately try to um, make an offensive in that direction, as soon as we will uh, reach the coast of the Azov Sea and the Black Sea in that uh, region, we would be able to keep under uh, fire control uh, the most of military facilities in Crimea. And it is also very important for us from different perspectives. As a perspective number one, we would be able to terminate or limited uh, abilities of Russians to launch cruise missiles from Crimea. Sorry, sorry. I will, I will follow up with a question. To get to, to get to Azov Sea, you need to conduct a land campaign east of the Dnieper River. That basically means you'd have to do, I think, logically, 
uh, tactics operation. Because the, the challenge, from my point of view, is Ukraine definitely is best positioned to cut off Kyrgyzstan west of the river, mm-hmm. the city of Kyrgyzstan. Because, because the bridges wow. are blown and they can't, that, they can't resupply them, right? Yeah, both because you can blow the bridges. It's very hard for Russians to then get across. Second, because it, it's a shrinking buffer that Russian military has. It's a steadily shrinking position. So over time, they could do it. Uh, and the correlation of force is very good because it's the Russian units there are not very strong either. And Russia stretched along this very big front. But Russians have redeployed reinforcements. If you push them on Kherson, they then end up across the river in a fairly defensible position. Like they actually have far more forces to defend Zaporizhia then. Yeah. And the only way to get to, you know, to get the Sea of Azov is obviously through Zaporizhia. And that raises the question of does Ukraine have the forces for that kind of campaign? One of the biggest unknowns about the state of Ukrainian military is there's, let's say, a perception that despite having a big manpower advantage, the Ukrainian military is conducting offensives with typically the same number of brigades, say a select set of brigades, right? That's at least one impression that's out there. And the question is, you know, does Ukraine actually have the additional brigades, the additional units to conduct an offensive and establish a positive correlation of forces? It's, yeah, it's a good question, I have to say. It's a good question, and it depends. Uh, one week ago, I, I would be more confident to tell, yes, we can do that, because of the number of Russian troops in that direction was quite minim, uh, quite uh, small. We, had, we were talking about like a seven, maybe ten uh, battalion tactical uh, groups only. Now, they significantly increase number of those troops. In general, we are talking about 20, 25,000 of troops in those, uh, most of those directions. How many troops do they have in each uh, location? I'm talking separately about the Kherson Oblast and, uh, I mean, uh, left bank or western bank. Or, and uh, in Zaporizhia, it's a question now. Oh. It's a question because it is not clear. But that is why I say we are talking about the very narrow window of opportunity for Ukrainian forces just to do something right now. Uh, deployment, uh, and uh, I, if you pay attention, I did mention that after liberation of the western bank of the river Dnieper, we will cross the border because it's technically impossible for huge number of troops. And I'm talking about the fire control only. And may, uh, main role will be played by the troops uh, advancing if it will happen indeed. Now I'm not so confident because of number of Russian troops. Uh, the main role will play a grouping of troops uh, advancing from Zaporizhia from the direction Vasilivka, uh, Orikhiv, uh, Gulaipole, from that direction to uh, Melitopol. Also, we did mention quite important thing uh, about that location. As you, uh, if you will glance on the map, for an, uh, for instance, British map, you always will see that the uh, Melitopol area is an area of uh, very active actions of uh, insurgents troops or partisans, as we call them. So, and uh, some of operations conducted by partisans were quite effective. And we anticipate keeping in mind that the partisan or insurgent movement in Ukraine under control of the Special Operation Force Command. So we can anticipate a good orchestrating. Is it correct? Orchestration. Maybe. Uh, orchestrating of uh, our efforts from the front and from the rear of Russian troops. And that is why, as I said again, it's it's about the timeline now. Because of uh, uh, additional deployment of troops may stop any attempts of Ukrainian forces to achieve any significant results in the nearest perspective, I can tell you. But, but Ser- S- Sergey, let, let me just say this, because there's a couple of ways to achieve the objective if the objective is to hold Crimea at risk with fire control, right? One is to get closer um, to to the uh, eastern part of the river, but the other one is to get longer range weapons, right? And I've argued that uh, the U.S. should be providing the attack of mass missiles with 300 kilometer range um, that can be used out of the HIMARS 
um, that you can use to actually hit um, Sevastopol out of uh, Mykolaiv and so forth. Um, and there's growing sort of uh, support for that in Congress as well. We'll see if the administration goes for that. But but is not another way that you can actually start um, hitting Crimea and putting the Black Sea um, uh, fleet uh, resources at risk there, even though they're starting to move the Black Sea fleet uh, over to the Novorossiysk area. But uh, to me, th- th- this war has always been a big part of the war was not just the land campaign, but also the blockade that the Russians are enforcing against your economy, your shipping, um, that, that is really critical to break, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I have one uh, comment about the long-range missiles, you know. Uh, it is a specific, uh, it's a, another lessons learned from uh, our campaign right now. Russians have no choice and have no any capability to stop attacks of HIMARS with a range of 60 up to 80 kilometers. At the same time, Using the well-developed anti-aircraft system uh, equipped with uh, C-300, C-400, they may be able to protect their facilities from the attacks of long-range missiles. Uh, And it will decrease effectiveness of using of that weapon. So at this stage, we are talking about uh, short, let's call it uh, short-range missiles only. And uh, we, that is why, as you can see, uh, our Ministry of Defense and Minister of Defense did not demand immediate deployment of uh, long-range missiles. And that is why, you know, uh, as Russians use so, uh, uh, so-called tactics of slices sausage, we use the same tactics. So we will advance step by step slicing sausage in, in a pieces uh, in slices let's say uh, advancing uh, using that opportunity right now uh, high mars and uh, m270 shows a high level of effectiveness and right now we are talking about uh, if I'm, i can't i can't remember exactly but we are talking about uh, roughly 50 objects attacked by uh, MLRS systems, different types of MLRS systems. But in in this campaign, as we call it campaign, 80% of uh, fire uh, solutions uh, were made by artillery. HIMARS is only one tool, and we are looking forward for artillery, more and more artillery, and uh, and the third option uh, and the third third part and the third sign and I can tell, uh, I'm very doubtful about our ability to conduct uh, la- ground offensive because of we have lack of uh, armored vehicles. But you, you you're yes, getting you're getting some number. more now from the West, right? Yes, yes, but it is not enough, you know. Uh, as uh, military science uh, taught us, uh, real victory uh, may be called a victory when uh, foot of infantrymen will appear on the ground. And this is it. But without maneuverable uh, assets, I'm talking about the high-speed uh, MRAPs, for instance, or uh, armored vehicles, different types, uh, we can spend and waste a lot of artillery shells without any significant successes there. Uh, right now, and even Russian sources agreed that we have like a balance of forces in the personnel. But unfortunately, comparison of uh, number of uh, armored vehicle and artillery systems uh, between Ukraine and Russia is not in a, uh, on the Ukrainian side. Mike, Mike, do you agree with that? Sorry, on which part of what Sergey said? Just the, the the lack of uh, uh, ability to to employ maneuver warfare as, as a result of limited numbers of armored vehicles it will be an issue for the Ukraine offensive. So yeah, so a couple things. One, I think protective mobility is a huge problem. I've been saying it actually for a long time. Ukraine is not short on tanks; it's short on protected mobility. Like motor rifle infantry needs to ride in something in an assault role. Okay, Ukraine has lots of dismounted infantry. If you look at a lot of Ukrainian lines. You actually see nothing but dismounted infantry holding it. That is not good enough to assault with. Issue two is integration between artillery and infantry and the like, because Ukraine has been very good at artillery with organic ISR assets, drones and what have you, prosecuting this war. But to do an offensive artillery, 
has to work with infantry and you have to have some degree of combined arms, all right? And Ukraine's experience in this so far has been limited. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just saying the experience has been limited, right? And, uh, and the other part is, you know, they have to have a quality of force because the quality of force goes down as you suffer attrition. So they have to have some number of units, brigades, right, that actually have good experienced soldiers in them that they can put together additional to the troops currently holding the front line. That's the other issue. So there has to be some additional number of troops beyond those currently on the line that can be put into action that are fresh. And, and it has to come together. My view is that it can be an incremental offensive, right? It doesn't need to be, you know, General Patton's campaign. Like it could be an incremental offensive. So we should be clear about what we're saying because sometimes people get different images in their mind when you say combined arms, you know, uh, maneuver warfare and the like. But nonetheless, yes, these are issues. Protect mobility is an issue. Uh, force quality training is an issue. And integration is an issue for yeah. them to be able to work together. Thank you, Mike, and I totally agree with you. And unfortunately for me, for Ukrainian officer, I have to confess that over the last eight years, moreover, I had a chat today with my colleague. We served together for a dozen years, and we agreed. Uh, it is a sad to say, but uh, we have to confess. Since 1992, in our field exercises, we did not study offensive actions. We always plan planned uh, defensive actions. I can't remember even one single training dedicated specially for to offensive. And uh, now I can state that uh, after eight years of war, Ukrainian forces are brilliant in defensive actions, but they have a very limited or almost zero experience to conduct wild-scale offensive actions. And uh, it will be an uh, additional issue in my understanding because of, you know, uh, you mentioned, Mike, about uh, the disconnection and uh, absence of cooperation between different types of uh, or wings of Ukraine, Russian army. And you are absolutely correct. And we anticipated and we expected and we saw the same. Russians have absolutely unbelievable level of disconnections. So infantry does not have any clue what artillery is doing and the uh, Air Force has no idea about the ground actions. Unfortunately, we have to say that uh, it, uh, we will face the same issue with the Ukrainian armed forces because, you know, without training, without experience, we are very limited in, the, in our ability to conduct any serious actions. That is why when, I'm, uh, when I was talking about the slicing, I'm talking about the so-called frog champs only. We're quite good in such an actions, but it doesn't mean that Ukraine will be able to conduct wild-scale offensive in close perspective, to be perfectly honest with you. Now, Sergey, one of the things that, that your president Zelensky has talked about is the huge number of losses that the Ukrainian forces have been experiencing in the Donbass fight. He said up to 200 people a day, which is just staggering numbers. And, and those are some of the best forces, right? Most trained forces. So, um, you know, obviously you have huge numbers with the mobilization that you've conducted, but is a number of trained troops um, sufficient, you think, for yes. uh, for counteroffensive? You know? Yes, and uh, I, I know it's a, bad, it's a bad behavior to smile about that, but I have to say also, we put in the first line so-called territorial defense troops. We did not uh, send there and deploy there like real troops. And uh, we used like a so-called Martian battalions of uh, territorial troops, and they got a lot of losses there. For instance, I spoke with my friend from Kiev, and he said from his, from his uh, company, from 67 people deployed to the theater, only 14 came back. Wow. And also, if we are talking about, uh, about losses, uh, you know, it looks very dramatic. At the same time, we are talking about the losses of the first phase of invasion. And uh, officially, according to the Red Cross information, we have almost 8,000 prisoners of war. 8,000 prisoners of war. So from uh, all of those numbers of troops, it's a quite significant portion, I can say, because of at the same time, Russians lost uh, as a prisoners of war, if I'm not mistaken, something about 900. 
Now, let, let's talk about the prisoners of war because there have been some really disturbing pictures, videos, and, and uh, of course, um, uh, news of atrocities that are being committed um, by the Russians against prisoners of war. Um, just the most recent one um, this week uh, with uh, Alenevka prison camp, where it appears that they've either covered up an execution of POWs or uh, truly executed them. Um, and, uh, you know, videos of horrible torture being conducted, um, including castration. Uh, what does that do to morale of Ukrainian forces? Does that stiffen the resolve? Uh, I, I imagine that uh, videos and pictures like that do not uh, encourage people to surrender, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Russians did in their usual manner to, uh, to show those pictures and conduct such an actions. Unfortunately for them, they achieve absolutely opposite result. And uh, as I saw in uh, social networks, uh, Ukrainian people uh, just to mobilize and unify in order to resist. And they, they, um, our people understand that uh, if Russians will come there, it will be more and more losses. Moreover, uh, I was not surprised to get uh, to receive such a news regarding the mass execution, and we we can to call it mass execution of uh, prisoners of war, because of Russians did the same everywhere. I received a lot of information coming from Kherson Oblast, from Chernigiv Oblast, from Kiev Oblast about the mass execution, and sometimes in my. Uh, uh, programs in my, in my uh, interviews, I always mention, guys, uh, Bucha and Irpeng are only minor and uh, palm uh, signs of uh, horror which we will face with uh, when we will re- liberate our lands there. And uh, Ukrainians very clearly understand now what does it mean Russian invasion and uh, as I said, e- e- Russians received absolutely opposite result because now it's about revenge, but at the same time, it's, it's about the specific of Ukrainian mentality. We always are uh, thinking about the trade because, you know, we are, we are keeping in mind a big number of our guys in, in a prison as a prisoners of war. And that is why it, 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 we will not face and we will not see a total execution of all uh, Russian prisoners, of course. because we will use them as a, for exchange with our guys there. That is why Russians, as I said, receive actually not, nothing except absolutely negative uh, response from the civilized world. No. Yeah. Well, Sergey, thank you so much for joining us. We, we certainly all wish you the best, uh, both personally to stay safe, uh, as well as uh, for the Ukrainian forces to continue their uh, valiant defense of the country against uh, horrible aggression from Russia. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, friends, for that opportunity just to share my knowledge, my experience about what's going on in Ukraine and our plans for future and our some history of the historical observations about our past. Thank you. When your death takes its toll All the money you made will never buy back your soul And I hope that you die